Hi, friends, and welcome to Cabernet and True Crime. Uh, I'm your host, Jana, and this is the place where good wine and true crime come together. If you're new here, welcome. And if you're not new here, then double welcome, and thanks for coming back. Some housekeeping items before we start. Um, Number one, I will be getting the intro sorted out this week. It probably bothers me a lot more than it bothers you, but it feels so weird just to like jump right into talking without my, uh, (laughs) my wonderful intro song. So uh, that'll be done this week. I promise I'm writing it down. Number two, sorry I missed out on last week. Uh, Well, I was out for some pretty personal reasons, but I've got some things going on in my life right now and they're like pretty big and pretty traumatic and have been a lot to process. And, you know, I just, I needed the time. So took a little breaky break. I'm back now though, so that's all that matters. The show must go on. And uh, number three, as always, you know the drill. Follow me on Instagram at Cabernet and True Crime. I post something every day, whether it's something informative or goofy or a weird crime or behind the scene. Like I, I use that um, as my primary place of expression. Um, I also use that to communicate with people. So if you ever want to talk about or request a case to be covered or even talk about your dog, that's the best place to do it. I'm here for it. I respond to almost every message that I get as long as it's not creepy. Okay, <laughs> so that's the housekeeping all done. I love quick housekeeping. So if you're a longtime listener, you know that I have a big old dang old list of cases that I find interesting and want to cover. So this guy was at the top of my list and I figured, why not today? Am I right? So this, this has no ados. We're just right into it. Our story starts on August 8th, 1973. At about 8.30 a.m., the Pasadena police arrived at a 911 call. The caller on the line said, y'all better come here right now. I just killed a man. And that is a verbatim quote. The caller was Elmer Wayne Henley. He instructed the emergency responder on where to send the emergency vehicles. And as they arrived, they saw Henley Timothy Cordell Curley, and Rhonda Louise Williams sitting on the front porch of a home that belonged to a man named Dean Coral. The officer noted that there was a 22 caliber pistol in the driveway near the teenagers, and Henley informed the officer that he was the one who had made the phone call and that they would find the body of Dean Coral inside. As promised, Dean Coral was found dead, naked, in the hallway with a gunshot wound to the head and shoulder. And if I know, like right now, you're thinking, hey, should we feel bad for this guy? And I'm going to give you a big fat spoiler alert. The answer is absolutely no. We should not feel bad for this guy. Okay. So just before you're like, oh, Jan- no, no, we don't feel bad for him. Police read Henley his Miranda rights and was taken to the Pasadena Police Department. And Henley was going to be questioned about the death of Dean Coral. But the can of worms police were about to open is just absolutely astounding, and that's where our story begins. Dean Arnold Coral was born on Christmas Eve 1939 in Fort Wayne, Indiana. He was the first uh, child of two. He had a younger brother named Stanley, who was born in 1942. He was born to Mary Robinson and Arnold Coral. Arnold was very strict with his children, where Mary was overprotective, and the couple fought frequently the marriage ending in divorce in 1946. 
After the divorce, Arnold, the dad, was drafted to the U.S. Air Force. Mary sold the family home and moved to a trailer in Memphis, Tennessee, so her young children could still be close to and visit their father while he was enlisted, which is a really solid move on Mary's part. I appreciate that she she uprooted herself to make sure her children had a relationship with their father. That was pretty solid of her to do that, assuming the relationship was good. That same year, Dean suffered from rheumatic fever, which is an inflammatory disease that can, ca- that can involve the heart, joints, skin, and brain. And people usually develop this disease uh, between two and four weeks after getting strep throat. Symptoms can include fever, painful joints, and sometimes a non-itchy rash. And the heart is involved in about 50% of these cases, but damaged valves can result in heart failure and an increased res- risk of infection in the heart valves. In this case, and unfortunately for Dan, his disease wasn't noticed until four years later in 1950. It was discovered that Dean had a heart murmur and was ordered to avoid physical education in school. Also in 1950, the same year he was diagnosed, Dean's parents tried to make the relationship work by getting remarried and moving to Pasadena, Texas. Their marriage failed a second time in 1953. But still, Mary and Arnold were were okay with one another, and both children, Dean and Stanley, had regular contact with their dad. Mary ended up remarrying uh, to a traveling clock salesman named Jake West. The family moved to Vidor, Texas, and had another child whose name was Joyce in 1955. The family started a candy company named Pecan Prince, which was operated from the garage of the family home. Dean worked all day and night while still attending school. He got good grades, and he was regarded as a well-behaved, albeit shy, kid. He was known to be a loner, but had some girlfriends, and he really had an average life graduating from Vidor High in 1958. After he graduated, the Corals packed up and moved closer to Houston, where most of their candy customers were. Two years later, in 1960, Dean moved to Indiana to live with his grandmother at the request of his mom. At this time, he was in a serious relationship with a girl, but rejected her marriage proposal, which I thought was super forward on her part to pop the question on her own. He rejected her either way. He moved back to Houston in 1962 to help with the business, eventually moving into an apartment apartment located above the shop. Mary Coral and Jake West divorced in 1963. Mary opened her own business called the Coral Candy Company, where Dean Coral was appointed vice president and Stanley, the little brother, was the secretary and treasurer. Male teenage employees were hired out to help the blossoming business. At one point, one of the employees complained to Mary that Dean had made some unwanted sexual advanta- advan- well, advances toward him. Uh, Mary fired that kid, which is something. In 1964, Dean Coral was drafted to the U.S. Army and moved to Fort Polk, Louisiana, for basic training. Then he moved to Fort Benning, Georgia, to train as a radio repairman, but was eventually camped in Fort Hood, Texas. His record was spotless in the Army, but according to his friends and family, he hated his time there. After 10 months of service, he was honorably discharged on June 11, 1965. He had applied for a hardship discharge, saying he needed to go home to be with the help of the family business. After his release from the army, Coral reportedly told his close friends that he was a homosexual and had his first homosexual experiences in the army. It was also worth mentioning, at this time, people began to actively notice Dean Coral's demeanor changed in the presence of teenage boys, leading most people to assume that he was in fact homosexual. 
1965, the Coral Candy Company relocated to a spot just across the street from an elementary school. Dean was known to hand out free candy to the locals, predominantly teenage boys, thus having him deemed the Candy Man. Dean installed a pool table at the back of the candy store so kids and employees, who were also teens, could hang out. In 1967, Dean started a friendship with 12-year-old David Owen Brooks. He had met Dean when he was in sixth grade. Uh, Mind you, so 12-year-old David, imagine that, 12 years old, he is friends with 28-year-old Dean, which I'm more or less the same age. You know, I'm 31. (laughs) And I have literally no interest in hanging out with, as friends, a 12-year-old. And I said this during the Charlie Albright episode as well. Like, what on earth could you have in common to talk about with a 12-year-old stranger? If it's your child, that's... If it's your child or your stepchild, that's definitely one thing. But this, like, random 12-year-old... I don't hate it, but in some cases, it does give me the ick. Yeah? Uh, So, like like I I say in my script, um, I mean, unless it was a father-son type bonding relationship, which is kind of okay... But spoiler alert, that's not the case here. Not to ruin this for you guys, but I'm assuming you you saw this coming. So David Brooks said he liked Dean because he had the hangout spot and would often join Dean with groups of other kids to the beach and on fun trips, which is all very... Okay, that's fine. David also liked Dean because he never made fun of his glasses, which is super sweet and cute. Dean also awarded David with gifts and presents and eventually a sexual relationship began between the two, which Dean would award gifts and money to David if he allowed fellatio to be performed on him. Really blurring the lines there. In 1968, Mary Coral and Joyce, Dean's half-sister, moved to Colorado after the Coral Candy Company went out of business. This is the last time she would ever see her son, although they maintained a phone relationship. After the closure of the business, Dean became an electrician for the Houston Lighting and Power Company. Brooks, who was the the 12-year-old but possibly teenager at this point, he moved to Beaumont, Texas, which is about 85 miles away from Houston, to be with his mother. This has happened in 1970. His father, who was divorced from the mom, still lived in Houston, so he was split custody. Whenever David would return home to Houston to see his dad, he also saw Dean Coral often staying at his apartment. On September 25, 1970, 18-year-old college freshman Jeffrey Conan was hitchhiking, hitchhiking with another student from the University of Texas to his parents' home in Houston, which I will note is 157 miles distance between the two. Jeffrey had been dropped off at the corner of Westheimer Road and South Voss Road, which is ironically very close to where Dean Coral lived at the time. What most likely happened is that Dean offered Jeffrey a ride to his parents' home and Jeffrey accepted, and the boy was never seen alive again. Around the same time, David Brooks, the teenager, tween teenager, had caught Dean Coral in the act of sexually assaulting two teenage boys who had been strapped to a four-post bed. Dean promised to buy David a car for his silence, and David Brooks accepted. Dean bought him a green Chevy Corvette. Coral later told Brooks he had already killed two people and that he would offer David 200 bucks for any boy he could lure, lure to Coral. 
On December 13, 1970, two 14-year-old boys named James Glass and Danny Yates are brought from a religious rally by Brooks to Coral's apartment. Glass had been an acquaintance to Brooks and already visited Coral's apartment on one occasion. Both teens were tied to Coral's torture board, which is the four-post bed, I'm assuming. They were raped, strangled, and eventually buried in a boat shed that Coral had rented. Around this time, former employees of the candy store came out to explain Coral's weird behavior, such as digging several holes, saying he was getting rid of spoiled candy to avoid insects, and then cementing them over, cementing the area over. Which would, in my opinion, uh, draw some attention to that, you would think, because I don't know how you would normally get rid of spoiled candy, but I don't think burying it and covering it with cement is my first option. On January 30th, 1971, Brooks and Coral met two teenage brothers named Donald and Jerry Waldrop, who were walking home. They had been dropped off at a friend's house only to find no one home. They were returning to their own house when Dean offered them a ride in his van. Dean Coral drove them to an apartment he rented, raped and tortured them before strangling them and burying them in the boat shed. On March 9th, 15-year-old Randall Harvey was riding his bike in the afternoon to his job at a, as a, wow, at a part-time gas station attendant. He, at some point, was picked up by Dean Coral. He was killed by a single gunshot wound to the head. On May 29, 1971, 13-year-old David Hillegeist and 16-year-old Gregory Winkle were abduct, abducted and killed together. All three victims were buried near the back of the boat shed, Uh, David Brooks is known to have helped in some way for all of these crimes. The parents of these teens, obviously, started a frantic search for their children. This involved pinning up missing persons photos, uh, specifically for David Hillegeist. This task was picked up by a 15-year-old named Elmer Wayne Henley, who had been Hillegeist's friend for their whole lives. On August 17, 1971, Coral and Brooks met a 17-year-old named Reuben Hanny, who was walking home from a movie theater. Brooks persuaded Hanny to attend a party at Coral's new apartment. He moved around a lot. Um, Hanny agreed to join Brooks and went to the apartment where he was strangled and buried in the boat shed. By September, Dean Coral had moved again, which by now, was, um, if my records are correct, was about the fourth time. David Brooks said that once they moved into his apartment, Brooks helped Coral kill two teens, both of which have never been identified. By wintertime of 1971, Elmer Wayne Henley, yes, the one who was putting up missing person signs for his friend, was introduced to Dean Coral by Brooks, which was most likely as an intended victim, I would guess. But for some reason, Dean Coral decided to offer him the same fee as Brooks, $200 for every boy he could lure to his apartment, under the premise of a, quote, white slavery ring housed in Dallas, Texas, which doesn't make it any better. I, that, (laughs) I don't know, that doesn't, fine, that doesn't make it any better, but apparently it worked. So Henley apparently had ignored Coral's offer, but in 1972 accepted because his family needed the money. And by this time of his acceptance, Dean Coral had already moved to a new apartment, which is apartment number five. So like, I just, you know, if you think about this for just a second, you know, like just to process this for one, we're going to pause for one minute. Your lifelong 
BFF suddenly goes missing, you know, as, you know, as it happened. And then this random dude that you meet is like, hey, I'm going to pay you 200 bucks for every person you lure to me. I'm sure he didn't phrase it that way, but fine. Every person you lure to me. And at no point you're like, hey, that's a little suspicious, right? Like whether it's a white slavery ring, whether it's just kidnapping people, these people are obviously going missing. You have no questions about what's happening to these people or where they're going. I just think it's kind of wild. I, uh, it's weird for the little kid. Well, he's not a little kid anymore, but you would suspect that that little kid, he's been groomed to be this person for Dean Coral, right? Like he's, he's lived his whole life from the time of sixth grade, knowing Dean to, to this point now. So he's, he's been groomed for this. This is what he knows. But this guy, you know, Henley, his friend, his best friend went missing, and he actually knew a couple of the other people. I mean, I don't think they were best friends, but he knew a couple of the other people who went missing as well. So you're telling me that none of this is going through his brain, like, what's going on here? I, I don't know. That's just my own personal opinion, but I think that's suspicious. Uh, so Henley brought his first boy to Dean Coral in late February or early March. He and Brooks had lured a boy to Dean's apartment based on the premise of smoking pot. Henley pulled a very John Wayne Gacy trick on the boy by handcuffing his hands behind his back and freeing himself and somehow tricked the kid into doing the same, although he couldn't free himself. Coral then bound and gagged him and Brooks and Henley left, thinking the boy was going to be sold into the sex slavery ring. Still weird. I, you know, (laughs) still not a good reason to, like, just do this. But the boy was thought to be Willard Branch, 17, whose body was eventually found in the boat shed. On March 24th, Henry, Brooks, and Coral ran into one of Henley's friends, 18-year-old Frank Aguirre. He was leaving a restaurant where he was employed. The trio invited Frank to Coral's apartment on the premise of drinking beer and smoking pot, and he agreed. Once at the apartment, Frank was a little suspicious, so he was tackled and handcuffed by Dean Coral. He was murdered, like the rest. At this time, both Brooks and Henley helped bury the body at High Island Beach. On April 20th, the trio abducted another boy, 17-year-old Mark Scott, who was a friend of both Henley and Brooks. So this, this whole thing is just getting, in my opinion, weirder and like a lot more escalated like that they're not just finding random people which I mean might have been the case in the beginning they weren't just finding random friends or like acquaintances or just like people they knew of like now they're they're actually targeting friends friends that both of these boys know which is even just more bizarre I for 200 bucks if you're my friend in real life for 200 bucks that's that's not enough money to sell out a friend to a to be murdered or even to a sex slave ring. So have that knowledge. That's just wild. 200 bucks is <laughs> just, I, to put a price on human life is just disgusting. And the fact that, I mean, these people did it so willingly is just I, bananas, especially when one of those people was your BFF and now 
like now you can't pretend like you don't know you've helped dispose of a body at this point you can't pretend like you don't know what's going on and that's the part I think in my opinion where this kind of really tilts right it goes from these two boys you know Henry and Brooks Henley and Brooks sorry like helping but not helping you know like they they could pretend like they didn't know what's happening they could they could be inactive participants but now like you know you know for a fact what's happening and that would have been your point to be like whoa I didn't sign up for this but you did sign up for it and I think the whole time they did know and then when they found out the truth they're like okay cool we're complacent in doing this and now we're accomplices just wild so on April 20th uh, like I said, the trio abducted another boy, 17-year-old Mark Scott, who was friends of both Henley and Brooks. Scott resisted the attack, but when Dean Coral pulled out his pistol, uh, he stopped fighting. He had been forced to write his mother a letter that, had, that he had found a job in Austin, Texas. He was tied to the torture board, raped, strangled, and buried at High Island Beach. The point of making him write a letter... I do not know. It doesn't seem like Dean had forced any of his other victims to do this, so why he forced Mark Scott to do it, completely bizarre, uh, just adding to the complexity of this case. Like, I, Sometimes you can see the logic behind things, and this is one of those cases where the logic is all faulted just across the board. Like, we'll, we're, we'll, we're going there. We're getting there. Two more people were killed in Coral's apartment before he moved out of it, where at this time, Henley was an active participant in not only the abductions, but the murders as well. Billy Bulch, who had been an employee of the Coral Candy Company, and Johnny DeLome were in Coral's apartment, tied to the torture board. Uh, Before they were on the board, Billy was forced to write a letter to his parents saying that he and DeLome had found jobs in Madisonville, Texas, I'm assuming. Um, And this... This statement, while I'm reading it now to you, makes me think that this might have been Henley's idea. Uh, Because Dean never did this before. This was never Dean Coral's MO. He never made people write letters. He just kind of, you know, did what he was going to do. And this this change might be because the whole trio's involved now, and the whole trio's making decisions, and now Henley's actively part of this. So that might be, like his thing that he wants them to do I'm not I'm not sure but the change in pace here like obviously you can tell there's escalation you can tell that there's a change in MO and you can tell that things are kind of starting to spiral out of control that's a word for it uh after Coral had tortured and raped them Elmer Henley manually strangled Balch and shot DeLome in the forehead with the pistol both were buried at High Island Beach. At one point, the trio lured 19-year-old Billy Riddinger to the home. He had been tied to the torture board and abused, but before Dean Coral or anyone else could kill him, David Brooks convinced Coral to let the boys go. After this event, a different day I'm assuming, Brooks entered the home and was knocked out by Henley as he came inside. 
Coral tied Brooks to the torture board and sexually assaulted the youth repeatedly before letting him go. And Brooks was still loyal to Coral after the event. Which this, like I just said, is a shift. It all seems like a huge power play. And there's a lot of shifting going on. Because, like I just said, in the deaths of Billy Bulch and uh, Johnny DeLome, Elmer Henley was the one who killed them, not Dean Coral. And you can tell that David Brooks is having massive second thoughts about all of this, which, you know, I don't know if he realized that he had been groomed into this or he realized that he had been, I don't know, Stockholm Syndrome into this. I don't know the best way to describe it. I'm thinking of a lot of words, but I don't think any of them are right. I, I just, you can tell that Elmer Henley is really trying to get the control in this situation and David Brooks kind of wants out because why would he, re- why would, how could he convince Dean Corr to let two people go that had already seen all this stuff and had already been part of it? And I mean, it's almost like a pack of dogs, right? So you have three different people trying to compete for the alpha. Well, two people competing for the alpha. And then you just got David Brooks, who's just kind of stuck in this. And you can tell he doesn't really want to be part of it anymore. But then he gets basically, I mean, for lack of a better term, like pushed into submission for this and is caused to bite his tongue and just, he's, he's had his place checked at the bottom of the totem pole. In the summer of 1972, Dean moved again to a new apartment. I think we're in apartment number six right now, but it could be somewhere between five and seven. On July 19th, 17-year-old Stephen Sickman was last seen leaving a party. He had been brutally beaten to death in the chest with a blunt object before he was strangled and buried in the boat shed. On or around August 21st, a 19-year-old named Roy Bunton was taken while walking to his job at a shoe store. He was shot twice in the head and buried in the boat shed. And these two victims actually weren't even identified until 2011. Once again, though, you can see a shift in the MO. They're not, they're being buried in the boat shed, which is kind of reminiscent of the beginning. Instead of High Island Beach, where like a handful of victims were also buried. So you're kind of changing it up. Where you know that the the boat shed was where Dean Coral was originally hiding his victims. And he didn't change that really until the others came into the picture and were actively kind of participating in this now. Just something to mention. On October 2nd, 1972, Henley and Brooks saw Wally J. Simino and Richard Hembry walking on the side of the road. They were picked up in the shiny green Corvette that Brooks was driving and taken to Coral's apartment. On October 3rd, Hembry was, quote, accidentally shot in the face by Henley, and later that day, both teens were strangled and buried together in the boat shed, their bodies directly on top of the bodies of James Glass and Danny Yates. On November 19th, 19-year-old Richard Kempner was disappeared on his way to a phone booth. He had been strangled and buried at High Island Beach. On January 20th, 1973, Coral moves again. Not long after that move, he killed 17-year-old Joseph Lyles, who had been known to both Coral and Brooks. On March 7th, Coral's on the move again to 2020 Lamar Drive. Between February 1st and June 4th of 1973, there were no murders. 
This is most likely related to medical issues Dean Coral was suffering from, as well as a move on Henley's part. It is said during this time, uh, Henley moved to Mount Pleasant in an attempt to get away from Coral, which is quite interesting because Henley was... Henley and Coral really in this power play to be the leader of this trio. Three's a crowd, (laughs) as they say. So it's interesting to note that that's the story was that Dean was having health issues, probably probably related to his heart murmur, um, unknown though, that at least to my knowledge right now talking about it. Uh, the move on Henley's part is interesting because why is he trying to get away from this situation? What happened? This lull, unfortunately, does not last for long because after this, the murders pick up tenfold. Brooks said on record that he knew when Dean Coral would request a new victim because he would become agitated and fidgety, chain-smoking cigarettes and acting like a spaz. On June 4th, 15-year-old William William Ray Lawrence was abducted. He was raped and tortured for three days in Coral's company. He was strangled and buried at Lake Sam Rayburn in Texas. Less than two weeks later, 20-year-old Raymond Stanley Blackburn a man hitchhiking home to Baton Rouge to see his newborn child was abducted, strangled, and buried at Lake Sam Rayburn. On July 7, 1973, Henley brought his acquaintance Homer Louis Louis Garcia to the home. He was shot and left to bleed to death in Coral's bathtub before being buried at the lake. On July 12th, John Sellers, who was 17, was bound and shot to death and buried at High Island Beach. He is the only victim to be buried fully clothed. Uh, later in the trial, it was wondered if he had been killed by Dean Coral, just because of the differences in this specific case if he was the only person to be buried fully clothed. But then um, he had also been shot with a rifle, where all the other victims had been killed with a pistol or strangled. Uh Also, Seller's car had been found one week after he disappeared, so it's possible that John Sellers is not a victim of Dean Coral, but somebody just had the luck. Luck is not a good luck for them, but shitty for everybody else. They had the luck of finding Dean Coral's burying ground, and so this victim kind of got lumped in with the rest, although odds are, as we know with my guy, Henry Lee Lucas, who I fucking hate, uh, is probably a cold case. Really. In July of 1973, David Brooks got married, uh, leaving Coral's trio of murdering. Henley was all Coral had now. And just a reminder, in case you had forgotten during this whole time, just to check, just a little checkity check on reality, David Brooks is 18, right now. And Elmer Henley is 17. That's just a mental note, uh, because a lot has happened, so I wanted to keep the story straight. These are still teenagers. These maniacs. On July 19th, 15-year-old Michael Balch, brother of previous victim, Billy Balch, was abducted on his way to get a haircut. He was strangled and buried at Lake Sam Rayburn. On July 25th, Charles Cobble and Mary Jones were abducted. Henley buried the bodies in the boat shed. 
On August 3rd, 1973, Coral killed 13-year-old James Dramala. He was abducted by Brooks and Coral while riding his bike, looking for empty glass bottles to resell. He was tied to the torture board, raped, and strangled with a cord before eventually being buried in the boat shed. Four days later, on August 7th, 1973, Elmer Henley invited 18-year-old Timothy Curley to Coral's home as an intended victim. The two handcuffed, uh, oh, the two, sorry, the two huffed paint and drank alcohol where they were left to get food. While they were out, Henley approached the home of a girl he knew, whose name is 15-year-old Rhonda Williams, who had been beaten by her drunk father and decided to leave her home until he became sober. Henley said that she could stay at Coral's house. Um, ironically, Rhonda Williams had been engaged to marry Frank Augier, who had been killed by Dean Coral in March of 1972. And this fact sparks the next part. Around 3 a.m. on August 8, 1973, the, this group arrived at Coral's home, who he was enraged that Henley had brought a girl into the home. Henley tried to explain the situation, which calmed Coral down like at least a little bit, and the trio of teens began to indulge in drug use and booze as Coral watched until the teens passed out. Henley woke up to Coral putting handcuffs on him. His mouth had been taped and his ankles had been bound together. Curly and Williams were bound with nylon rope and gagged with tape, and Curly was stripped naked. Which, as a reminder, Curly is the teenage boy. Rhonda Williams is the teenage girl. Henley talked himself out of the situation and offered to help Coral torture Curly and Williams. They were both tied to the torture board where Coral began sexually assaulting Curly. At some point, Henley grabbed Coral's pistol and shouted, You've gone far enough, Dean. I can't have you kill all of my friends. But I will be the devil's advocate here and say that, Henley, you also killed some of your friends and you presented them to this man. That's just, you know, <laughs> a moot point at this point, but you know what I'm saying. So Henley shot at Coral, the bullet hitting him in the forehead, but it didn't fully penetrate his skull. Henley fired two more times, hitting Dean in the left shoulder, and when Dean fell to the ground, he was shot three more times uh, in, in the lower back, dying where he fell. After Coral was dead... Henley took the teens off the torture boards, and the group decided to phone the police. Once at the police station, so now we're back right on to the beginning of where we started in the story. You see that I did a little, a little flashback to the present. Uh, Once at the police station, Henley was questioned about the death of Dean Coral. He said that he had shot Coral in self-defense with the statements of the other teens uh, they gave corroborating the story. Uh, the police had all agreed that he had acted purely in self-defense. And that's when Henley tells the whole story of Dean Coral and what he had been involved with. Police didn't initially even believe Henley, but when he began listing off names of whom he'd helped attain for Coral, all of which were missing people, they looked at the home and noted the thick plastic in the room where the torture boards were, which were eight by three ply boards with handcuffs attached at each corner. So at the beginning, I think they started off as the four-post bed, but then they he created these 
actual boards for torturing, which is just disgusting. Also found at the home were a large hunting knife, rolls of plastic films, a portable radio, eight pairs of handcuffs, and a number of dildos. Inside Coral's van, police found a wooden crate with air holes drilled in the sides, among other things. Another crate with air holes was found in Coral's backyard. Police found human hair inside the crates. Henley led investigators to the boat shed. All of the victims in the boat shed had been sodomized. Others found tortures in varying ways, um, which are gross, but pubic hairs had been ripped out. Genitals were chewed. Um, objects had been inserted into their rectums. Glass rods were inserted into the urethra and then smashed. Cloth rags were inserted into victims' mouths and then taped there to muffle screams. Uh, eight bodies had been found in the boat shed. That evening, August 8th, uh, David Brooks came to the police station and gave a statement. He said he had never helped with the murders, but knew that Coral had raped and killed two people in 1970. Henley gave his full written statement the following day. He fully admitted to killing nine people and had assisted Coral with several others. He took the police to Lake Sam Rayburn to show police where the trio had buried four bodies that year, and two additional bodies were found close to a dirt road. Back at the boat shed, police had found nine more bodies on August 9th. Luckily, David Brooks eventually confessed to his true involvement of procuring the victims, being present at the murders, and aiding in the burials, burials, but he maintained he had never killed or helped kill anyone. Brooks agreed to help find, or sorry, Brooks agreed to help the police find the bodies at High Island Beach. The known number of victims Dean Coral killed is 27. By April 1974, 21 of the victims were identified and two more were identified in 1983 and 1985, and like I said earlier, a few more were identified in 2011. The two men, Brooks and Henley, were indicted and bond... Wow. Brooks and Henley were indicted, and bond was set for each at $100,000. Henley had been indicted for six murders, not including the death of Dean Coral, which had been ruled as self-defense. Dean Brooks was indicted on four murder charges. The two men were tried separately for the roles in the murders. Elmer Wayne Henley's trial started on July 1st, 1974. The state had 82 pieces of evidence in the trial, and on July 15th, 1974, the closing arguments were presented and the prosecution was seeking life imprisonment. The jury deliberated for 92 minutes, and Henley was found guilty of all six murders he was tried for. He was sentenced to six 99-year sentences, which would be 594 years in total, and was transferred to jail to begin serving his sentence. Henley appealed and won. He was rewarded a retrial in December of 1978, and the trial started on June 18, 1979. The retrial lasted nine days, and on June 27, 1979, Henley was convicted again of all six murders and was sentenced to six 99-year terms again. On February 27, 1975, David Brooks went to trial. The trial lasted less than one week, with the jury deliberating only 90 minutes before reaching a verdict. He was found guilty for the death of William Ray Lawrence on March 4, 1975, and given a life sentence. Brooks also appealed, but his argument was dismissed. 
Henley and Brooks are both serving life sentences. 42 boys had vanished in the Houston area between 1970 and 1973. Police stopped looking for more victims after the record for most victims, which was 25 by Juan Corona, had been found. That meaning, after bodies number 26 and 27 were found, police stopped looking for more bodies despite the insistence of Henley that there were at least two more, which is, you know, fucking upsetting because those are at least, I mean, think of it. You, there's no way to know how many people Dean Coral actually killed. And now those are families that might possibly never get justice just because nobody felt like looking into these other cases that you know for a fact exist, which is just upsetting. Once again, not to bring him in again, but Henry Lee Lucas is just a very frustrating human who's a liar and a cheat and a horrible human being. I mean, all serial killers are, but Henry Lee Lucas has a real, a real, have a real hatred for that man just because he claimed to kill 600 fucking people, which you know he didn't, and it's physically impossible for him to do so. But now all those cases are cold because police departments were like, yeah, okay, like, that's probably right. And now, now what? So that just means you let a bunch of killers go that actually murdered people, and they're never going to pay the price for what they did, which is really infuriating, actually. But with that being said, that was this week's episode of Dean Coral. Um, I hope you learned something and enjoyed your time. I, I guess I'd, uh, I, I always get really frustrated at the end of these because they don't end, well, obviously, I mean, they end the way you want them to. I mean, people are serving life sentences and like, that's all good. But then you've got this little blip at the end where it's like, yeah, but you know, as I stated on my Instagram page with forensic science the way it is now, which is thankful, it's not a matter of if you'll get caught. It's a matter of when you'll get caught. And so I'll leave this on that statement because justice will always be served to some extent. And that's, <laughs> that's that for this week. So I will catch you next week. Um, I have two things in the books. I'm not sure which, I don't know which case I'm going to cover yet. Uh, I've been working with the family of a mysterious death um, and they, they would like to get more traction on getting their cause out there. So I, I've been working with them. I don't know if I'm going to be ready to present that next week. So I will do my best. And like I said, I'll have the intro and outro fixed by next week. So <laughs> listen again for that. All right. I'll catch you on the flip side.